heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. What is up, people? The current time in Moscow is 1,640. It's a little bit later in the day today in Moscow than it was last week, I think, right? Right, right. That's un- that's, that's a shame. I mean, it's, it's a good and bad. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Cheaper sats. Well, you know, Moscow time is, is different than regular time. <laughs> it's a time vortex. Yes time dilation science how's everybody doing hope you guys are doing well we have one concurrent viewer (laughs) we appreciate you (laughs) we do this for you know yep we're here for you one guy so what are we talking about this week ben a lot happened. Uh, I feel like it's been like three weeks since the last time we talked. That's what I'm talking about. Moscow time is crazy, man. Um, I wanted to talk about your article. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I just published that last night. And for anybody listening, um, that article probably took me collectively like several weeks to write because it's pulled from a series of blog posts that I did on our um, WTF 1971 blog. And I sort of took a bunch of the pieces of the blog and threw them together and then turned it into an article because I know hardly anybody's read that blog. And I'm like, I think this is a pretty good series of writings and I'd like to make it more cohesive, like a bite size. Well, it's not, it's 26 minute read, so I don't know about bite size, but take it out of the bite size format and make it something more comprehensive. Because you had told me that your mom read my blog and was just like generally confused, like what are the points he's making? Well, this this is the, this is kind of the problem, right? With trying to understand the monetary system and how it relates to you know where we are today, I think it's it's not an easy you know it's not, it's a non-trivial thing to try to understand, and it's it's taken you months, if not years, of research into the history of money to be able to write articles like this. And even then, when you read it, you're kind of just like, uh, okay, they what's they his have, point? <laughs> yeah, there's paper, and then there's like suspension. Isn't that good? Because the banks don't fail, right? Like it sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I like I wanted to go through it um, and 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 kind of give a nod to uh, our buddy Nick Fatia. Well, not I don't know if he considers us <laughs> his buddy. But no, 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 we're we're cool. Nick, we love you. Nick, Nick, we love you, buddy. Um, Nick Fatia wrote a book called Layered Money, um, which really like it discusses a lot of these concepts. Um, and you know, your article goes through the history of layered money, which is really important to understand how we got to 1913, what happened after 1913, how we got to 1971 today. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing that you always hear Colin drilling in is the, rede- the redemption of specie 
as a, a method of forced discipline for um, the, the the people that are run our, our countries, right? It, it, it brings you back to reality. And, um, you know, you go through some times like in 1918, 1919, where you had a 28% or 28% reduction in the monetary supply. That is the discipline. That is us looking around and saying, oh, this is how much gold there actually is, even though we had all this paper in the system, right? That liquidation is painful. It's the same thing as 1929. It's, it's very similar where you look around, you know, the roaring 20s, everybody's drunk, there's lots of inflation, everybody's feeling great. And then you realize the hangover comes, you realize there's not as much in, in um, you know, there's not as much gold, there's not as much reality as you thought, and you have to bring it back. That liquid, liquidation is painful. It's the inflation that you, you know, that is, is the reality distortion field, right? Speaking of reality distortion fields. And, you know, like what I had hoped to communicate with that um, <clears throat> was that even like, so the, the part that a lot of people don't understand that I put like right at the beginning is that uh, the U.S. has had some degree of a fiat money system since pretty much its inception, right, to, through bimetallism. Um, but what what a lot of people would argue like, oh, no, no, we had like the Gilded Age and all of these wonderful time periods in America where we didn't have fiat money and everything worked perfectly. But that isn't that's that's kind of only half true. Um, the more important thing is that we still had a um, free market that allowed to some degree the process of liquidation so like we'd have these huge credit bubbles and these huge um expansionary monetary bubbles and they would burst and then the government would step in and declare these bank holidays where they'd suspend the redemption of specie but what's more important to realize is that eventually that liquidation um happened to some degree right there there was still some liquidation there wasn't like what we had after 1933 where you had indefinite suspension of redemption of specie which indefinitely postponed liquidation driven by americans but you still had redemption of specie at the level of the sovereigns like at, at the state level and then in 1971 they indefinitely suspended uh, redemption of specie for the state sovereigns and now now there was no more because at that point um that was why you know we were able to do a lot of things from 1933 to 1971 under Bretton Woods that was sort of like a pseudo gold standard. That's what I called it in the article, because um, there was still this idea that the nation states were ultimately still accountable to one another uh, in the free market. Uh, and then in 1971, that was when things really went off the rails because the process of liquidation was totally halted indefinitely for everybody. Right. And, and in a sense, this kind of goes to short-term volatility versus long-term volatility. So, uh, you know, we have this chart on the website. This is, um, this is the one without the arrow, arrow in 1971. Um, but to me, the, you know, the last five decades have been an era of little short-term volatility, but very like a lot of, of long-term volatility events like 2008, like 2020. Um, and, and, I think it, you know, it drives this, uh, this wealth inequality thing, but, um, getting, getting back to your paper a little bit, it's, it's the suspension of the redemption of specie. You know, this is this thing we keep saying it's this kind of fancy words, but it's stopping people from, you know, stopping the market from bringing things back to reality. Um, that is, it is this soft default. It is a form of cheating. It's a form of lying. It's, it's protecting 
the uh, institutions that are perpetrating the inflation from the liquidation of malinvestment. So when there seems to be more than there really is, right? There, there's What's that quote from the Bible? I think it was in your paper, Colin, your other paper about um, when the uh, person thinks there's enough to complete the project and he's a fool. Do you remember that one? No. Oh no, it's from uh, it's from Ethics of Money Production. That's right. Um, it, it's the inflation uh, makes you the fool because you think there's enough to complete the project. That's the malinvestment. When you prevent the liquidation on malinvestment, those fools keep running the fucking country, and we're we're stopping them from from dying, dude. It's so fucked up, dude. It's so it makes me so mad that our country is full of all these zombies. They're malinvestment ridden, just like just leeches on our system, right? Um, and so. I would wager that most of them who have profited the most from this system probably don't even understand how it's actually working um, no. at, at a high level. You know what I mean? Like they might, in the day-to-day, -day, they might realize, oh, okay, what I'm doing is working. I'm going to keep doing it. But I think a lot of these people who have been extremely successful under this inflationary paradigm, like, like Jeff Booth talks about, like once you get under this system um, where you don't allow the liquidation, the only way to continue to allow it to exist is to continue to expand the money supply and continue to expand the credit supply. Um, and Which I again, I, back to my first point, sounds like a good thing because once you realize you're on the precipice of being like, oh shit, there's not enough gold, so to speak, let's, let's stop the liquidation from happening because that's really scary. It's painful. It's painful to come back to reality and realize you are the fool that didn't have enough to complete the project, right? Right. But then what ends up happening is what we've seen in this country, and that's what our website shows so well. Like everything just goes to shit. The rich get extremely wealthy in a matter of several generations. Um, you know, the, the poor get poorer because their wealth is re redistributed and reallocated by these central planners who manipulate the money and credit supply and postpone this process of liquidation. Uh, you know, the, the average laborer suffers, families suffer, hard work, the middle class gets eradicated, and in the, the 1%, their wealth grows logarithmically in proportion to everyone else um, because they hold all the assets and they have a disproportionate exposure to the asset inflation that's caused by all of the money debasement. Right. And so just kind of continuing along on my kind of analysis of your paper, I really liked it. Fiat Lux, if you haven't seen it yet, check out Colin's um, Twitter. You can find it there. Um, the in, in 1929, there was a huge liquidation of malinvestment. And they kind of, we got together as a country, we were like, we don't like that painful part. We, we, we would prefer to have the cheating and lying and soft defaults and protection from the liquidations malinvestment keep going because in the short term, it seems good, even though in the long term, this is that kicking the can down the road kind of thing. So let's get together in 1933 and do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and believe me, we could spend multiple episodes just on what happened in 1933 maybe we will at some point but one of the things that i thought was interesting that i had kind of missed earlier in some of your other writings calling your research was the federal open market committee the fomc mm -hmm. was part of the 1933 new deal mm -hmm. uh why does that matter well, why do you think i'm highlighting that so if you go and look at the, um, our blog which i know it's not probably a lot of not a lot of people have read it but if you go look at it um i actually did a whole series because that's where these writings are from. I pulled them from the blog. If you go look at our blog, I did a whole series on the New Deal. Um, you just go to that search button in the in the right corner there and just type New Deal, and you'll see all the New Deal posts. And a lot of our extremely screwed up systems that are still in this country today 
um, happened during the New Deal. Oh, I got to get rid of that pop-up because I don't think that even <laughs> works anymore. Um, and the FOMC and, you know, things like FDIC, um, Social Security, so much of that stuff was put in place by FDR. And it was in response to this massively painful liquidation event um, that happened in 1929. And... A lot of these really screwed up systems that came from that crash are still with us today. Um, so it's interesting to think about the consequent, the the unseen consequences of these liquidation events. If the you know when when the politicians have to ride them out, um, what types of extremely screwed up policies they're going to put in place that might be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to undo later. Right. Well. The reason I brought it up specifically is because something I've talked about a number of times in the past is the fiat monetary experiment as a paradigm. And how if you kind of like look at the different countries in the world, there is one country that's a little bit farther ahead on this experiment, just from the way that they've kind of managed their economy. And that example I always give is Japan, and that we are all experiencing Japanification in a sense of the way that we handle our money. Um, because they've had far more open market operations, at least over the last few decades. And now, you know, the J Japan Bank of Japan basically owns like, like inordinate amounts of their stock market. Um, and this is like how we say that like fiat money leads to literal um, governments owning the means of production. Like it's, it's, it's physically happening in front of our eyes. Um, and, you know, well, look at this, folks. It's not just Japan, right? Because what do we have here? What is this, Colin? Um, looks like the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve, right? Well, yeah, that's correct, Colin. And what do we have uh, going on in this side of the chart over here? Oh, we have unprecedented <laughs> expansion. Yes, right. So it looks like the Federal Reserve is also starting to own more and more assets. Would you, would you say that's accurate? So. Yeah, and I forget the exact <laughs> numbers because the last time I looked at it was like two years ago, and I'm sure it's way bigger now. But... Um, like, you know, look at some of these national banks um, outside of the U.S., and they own unprecedented proportions of their equity markets. And and people actually wrongfully point to Japan and use it in a, as an example of how this type of monetary policy is long-term sustainable. But what they don't realize is that uh, there was an arbitrage trade um, that, that sort of kept the Japanese markets afloat because they had these real negative yield bonds. Right. And, and because the, they were continuing to debase at the rate that they were, um, there was an arbitrage trade there for literally everyone else in the world um, because it was just cheap credit for them. And they were able to capitalize off that arbitrage trade. And that eased a lot of the pain for Japan. Who's going to arbitrage trade with the global reserve currency and the global, you know, the global debt hegemony of the United States? Nobody, because there's nobody to step in. I mean, you know, short of them forming uh, a new you know, quasi-imperial central bank, you know, that oversees all the other central banks. I mean, they tried that with the SDR, right? It didn't really work. Right. And I love that at the end of your article, we brought in the SDR. It's like, okay, so we got rid of that system. And then you brought in the SDR as like the new, it's like the new system. That's a new fiat decree that's like works worldwide. Um, yeah, you guys should really read the paper and try to understand it. And if you don't reach out to us, because it's, it's so important to understand like the parts of our history that worked and the parts that didn't and why they didn't 
and because it all it all sounds like things that they're oh they're trying to prevent you know bank runs it sounds good it's it's not you know it's kind of like so socialism i said this in the article but the reason that i wrote it um the reason that i i wrote it well, I, I wrote the sections on, on the history in the blog, and I wrote those just because they're interesting and they're important to understand. But I wrote that article specifically where I had compiled that information is because I'm so sick and tired of seeing um, mostly liberty-minded people. It tends to be like the gold bugs who say that Bitcoin is a fiat currency. Um, and I, I take offense to that because it's, it's obvious that those people are whole like extremely uninformed. I don't know how they've formed the basis of their opinions that our money system is a scam in its current form. Um, gold is real money, and they need to buy gold. And Bitcoin is a fiat currency. I just don't. I don't know where that line of reasoning originated. Somebody's pushing that somewhere. Somebody with a big audience, because you see this pop up again and again and again. Um, Stefan Levera like quote tweeted someone just yesterday, right before I released the article, and I was like, "Damn, I got to push that article out because I'm so sick of seeing this, and I need a piece of writing that I can point people to that says, no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong,' um, because it's obvious. Like once you understand this history of money, it's obvious that Bitcoin cannot be a fiat money. It's impossible. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. And words mean things. And I've been in arguments with people on Twitter before who are like. Oh, yeah, well, fiat might mean by decree, but now it means something else. Now it means um, backed by nothing or redeemable by nothing. No, it doesn't. It's never meant that. It's never meant that. Um, that well, that's Colin, absurd. Bit, bit, Words mean Bitcoin's, things. Bitcoin's backed by nothing, too, isn't it? It's so stupid. <laughs> it's like saying gold is backed by nothing. It's so stupid. Well, no, but, 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 but gold, gold is backed by, Intrinsic by science. Value. By, by, oh, God. <laughs> industrial use value i can't even steal man you, you hey you asked a minute ago like who's going to arbitrage the u.s dollar well i have a chart for that um this is the SPX bitcoiners price. bitcoiners are going to arbitrage the US dollar. <laughs> this is the spx priced in bitcoin over time uh everything is trending to zero in bitcoin terms folks um including uh here's here's another one i don't know if you guys care about this but um, i figured i'd throw it up i thought this was actually really interesting it's a stupid meme but it's actually really interesting uh, what's happening with dogecoin right now um what this chart shows to me um is obviously you can see these pump and dumps um yes you can absolutely make money holding dogecoin if you can i don't know if you guys can see my mouse here buy right here and sell right here every single time if you are that good um good luck to you uh, because if you buy right here and sell right here uh, look at the time it spends at the bottom versus the time it spends in the highs. This is an extremely illiquid gambling token. There is no fundamentals behind it, obviously. Um, but you can see because it's so illiquid, there's so much hype in this market. And so such a lack of understanding of how money works. Um, these things perpetuate themselves. So, so I have two thoughts on that. Um, firstly, oh, yeah? doesn't like one wallet own like 25% of the doge? um yeah i think so and the supply is completely uncapped it's like um, billions of dollars in doge like one one person owns like it, it's like well, a lot of money well it is it is today colin <laughs> yeah no it, but i mean we're talking no it was like billions of dollars back when doge was like a penny i don't know exactly how much it is but it's like a shit ton of money um Jesus. and it's owned by like one wallet and no one even knows who it is because they probably mined a bunch of it and like they, they were probably like an early adopter um, it might even be the the dude who created it or something like that, but um, or like just some 
nerd who hopped on the bandwagon. So, but like my other thing, you know, looking at that chart, because you do see there are those periods of consolidation and people like Ben and I who have spent a lot of time in this market, like, of course, we can look at that and say, well, there's profit opportunity there, right? Because that chart is doge priced in Bitcoin, not in dollars, right? So if you're going to be a trader, you want to make sure that you're trading, uh, that you're denominating your trades in Bitcoin. Because if you're not increasing your Satoshi stack, then you're probably losing money from an opportunity cost perspective as opposed to just holding Bitcoin. So when I look at those periods where like, oh, look, Doge is relatively cheap, like in the beginning of 2020, right? I could be accumulating there, but there's no guarantee and I have no power over whether or not that pump ever happens again, right? That pump is caused by insiders and by um, events like, you know, Mr. Banana Man coming in and saying, oh, I'm putting Doge on my balance sheet because he's that much of a fucking idiot. There is no way for you to guarantee that you're going to capture one of these pump events, even if you're accumulating at the all-time low. Some of these coins, you you have to factor in the fact that there's been like probably close to over 10,000 cryptocurrencies at this point, and some of them are dead forever. Like, go look at the price of hobo nickels. You could have been a pri- acquiring hobo. I don't even think it's listed anymore anywhere. You could have been acquiring that at its all-time low prices for like five years, and you'd still be trending even lower. And in fact, you've been delisted from just about every single exchange. That money is gone. Like, it, that project is dead. And I, if you really see long-term potential in Doge, then I've got some uh, beachfront real estate to sell you in Idaho. Um, I probably should have kept this on the last discussion. Um, Your two, kitty two, wants out. <laughs> two, um, well, does she need help? <laughs> Can she open doors? Uh, I don't think so. Come on, kitty. You can get out. Um, so this one I thought was really interesting. Uh, gold price and Bank of England intervention on the gold market. Millions of dollars. Um, at first I looked at this and I was like, oh, what the hell is this saying? And then I realized, so this orange stuff here is the intervention. So if you see like or, um, more orange on top, so that FOMC thing I was talking about earlier, um, basically, if you're not familiar, it just means the Federal Reserve can literally buy and sell assets, which is cool. Um, they basically can just literally intervene into the market. And you can see um, this is like a story of um, every time this blue line is going up the gold price, it's it's uh, the reality attempting to come back to, to reality. It's, it's attempting to realize how much gold we actually have. So the price goes up because there's more dollars in the system. And whenever you see the um, intervention go up, right? So here you see the dollars going up a lot in the 1960s. The intervention goes up and the price goes back down again, right? Um, the, here's the price coming up. Intervention goes up. Price goes back down, right? So you can see this pattern play out. Lots of intervention. Price stays down, <laughs> less intervention, price goes up again. Like it, it's like fucking clockwork, right? That they have to manipulate the markets. And this is kind of, you kind of touched on this in the article as well. I thought that was really good. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to jump in on that, but I have another chart um, I wanted to go I mean, over. You know, I would just like, if, if you're looking at this and you're like, I have no idea what this is. Like I would suggest <laughs> you go study the London gold pool. Um, yeah. I'm in particular, I linked an article or I linked a study in the article that I wrote uh, towards the end in the section about London gold pool um, to sort of get a better understanding of just how manipulated these markets are and how long they've been manipulated because like a lot of people look back at 
pre-1971 America and, and think, oh, this was the golden age. If only we could go back. Like, you guys don't realize how deep this rabbit hole goes. That This... This is such, like, people need to understand the fundamentals of what has caused the disaster that we're in today to know, you know, the types of system that we need to be under now to prevent it. Um, they have no idea how deep this manipulation goes. It goes back so far. It goes back to the beginning of the, of this country. It goes back farther than that. I mean, fucking princes have been debasing sure. their coins yeah. for, for centuries, if not thousands of but years. And eventually and be... those princes were sort of like brought to count you know what i mean like they, they could the only difference. do that for so long they couldn't perpetuate it indefinitely um like that's, like but we've that's seemingly no been able to do in the west Colin, i'd say it very slightly differently and still very much in agreement with you is that as and george guido holzman puts this perfectly in the ethics of money, money production the princes used to be caught blushing when they debased the currency now they've convinced us all it's a fucking good thing right, right. so it's, it's the the um the institutional church 2.0 you know right it's, it's just yeah. this control uh breed love was talking about this with max hillebrand the other day that was a really good stream if you guys haven't seen it talking about the control of information right is what gave the church its power and the mm. printing press came along and disrupted that uh, yep. monopoly on information and totally dissolved the church's power and i think we're sort of seeing a similar thing play out today um a massive resurgence of it's like a, 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 a digital renaissance is essentially what we're seeing at the moment. And it's it's pretty incredible to see. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, I had one more. I don't think this is the chart you were talking about earlier, but it is similar. Um, real assets versus financial assets, uh, relative price. So real assets, commodities, real estate versus stocks and long-term government bonds over a very long period of time this is since um, 1925 all the way up till 2020 where COVID hits. Um, this is essentially saying that like real commodity prices used to be higher and now financial assets prices are higher. So which, essentially this is the financialization of the economy, I think. Which funny, funny enough, think about how much like the collectibles market has boomed in the last decade right like if you had just mm -hmm. went and bought like a bunch of super nintendo games and pokemon cards that were um in demand today like a decade ago you'd be filthy rich and but, real and, estate and yet, prices and real estate prices and yet look at how we're at an all-time low on this ratio of real assets versus financial assets so what that should tell you is just how inflated the financial assets are relative to the real assets because even the real assets you would have made a killing in the last 10 or 20 years because the real assets have and i'm going to trigger colin here intrinsic value <laughs> yeah we're never doing this stream again ben <laughs> i gotta get one trigger in there um to uh to kind of round out the discussion on your your paper um i wanted to throw one more back to nick batia um this is, uh, oh, actually, this wasn't the chart I wanted. Um, this is the layered money that I was talking about. So this chart is from layered money. Um, I can go grab the other one, but it would probably take too long. Um, but maybe we just, just we could just talk it out, the difference between, so Bitcoin is going to be layered money as well, right? So like the difference between the layered monetary system of the gold system, where central banks, where people, uh, where bookkeepers' pens were in between um, the two layers of gold and and, and paper 
um, you know, the difference between that and a system where we can cryptographically and, and, and in, in an intrinsic way tie um, the Bitcoin system to layered systems. Um, did you get it? Well, this is kind of a tangent, but did you get a chance to listen to Greg Foss on uh, Preston Fish's show? No, not yet. Um, he has a really interesting take that I've never heard before. Because, oh, now granted, I think Greg is an incredibly smart guy, but I don't necessarily agree with everything he says because I'm an Austrian through and through, and I don't believe in intrinsic value. But Greg has a really good point um, where he basically used the credit default swap market to calculate an intrinsic value of Bitcoin as collateral against uh, sovereign default. Are you triggering yourself now? No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just talking about... Um, how, what how what Greg was saying is really interesting because I've never heard it presented that way before. But he's actually able to calculate like a nominal dollar value of what Bitcoin should be worth today as an insurance bet on the credit default swap market. And how, you know, the closer we get to or as risk of sovereign default increases, that value skyrockets pretty quickly. But he, he calculates like a fair value, quote unquote, of Bitcoin based on his intrinsic value calculation of like around 100 grand like in today's market um and i i just thought that was interesting i don't you know greg's a lot smarter than i am despite the fact that i disagree with some of his premises um and, and i'm very interested in that analysis yeah Sorry, i um, forgot your question <laughs> no that's okay um i i definitely like Greg Foss, we've, he's been on a bunch of pods. He was on What Bitcoin Did. He was on, um, I think, John K. Um Yeah, he's definitely got a really good take on it. He he kind of looks at it and he has a better view of the modern financial world, I think, than we do. So, um, yeah, inter interesting kind of uh, like technical analysis there. Um, maybe kind of finishing out my discussion on gold itself. Uh, I wanted to pay like just. Pay a little respect to a guy that hangs out on our Discord. His name is Grant Bartell. He made this website. It's um, it's called Bitcoin Flips Gold. Uh, flip Bitcoin Flips Gold. Um, and just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a, an update on the progress of Bitcoin flipping gold. So you can see here, this is a uh, not a logarithmic chart, um, but you know earlier this year we were at about one percent of gold. Um, the gold is the, there's three main shit coins in the world today, or two, two main shit coins and one actual Bitcoin, uh, gold, US dollar and Bitcoin, obviously. Um, and pricing Bitcoin in dollars to me is almost making no sense when they're printing trillions of dollars. But I, I, I do think there's some use to print pricing things in gold um, because, you know, when you can actually redeem in gold, it is, it is relatively good at keeping us in the reality here. Um, but you can see we've jumped up from one seven, one point six, one point six, all the way up to a ten percent um, flipping of gold. So uh, I just, I just love the way that this is presented. It's very cool. Um, can't wait to see this thing play out a little bit. Um, and I thought I also Peter Schiff in disbelief. Yes. <laughs> I also have this one, which would be nice, nice little uh, kind of milestones along the way. We've been um, eclipsing a lot of other assets lately in market yes. cap i mean i, I kind of think market cap is sort of a silly metric but sure but it, it's still it, it's still a way for us to kind of look at where we are you know bitcoin is a trillion dollar system now La you know 
just a year ago it was a oh, it was point one you know it was point one trillion. It's like eh, it doesn't really even matter now. It's a trillion dollar system. You know, in two three years, it's a ten trillion dollar system. It's like well, now it's a real like financial asset. It's it's larger than fucking Brazil's stock market. So that that kind of matters in a way. Right? Do you remember that tweet from like a blue check mark when we first broke a trillion dollar market cap? Who was basically like, oh, everybody's cheering about having a trillion dollar Bitcoin market cap, but in reality. Nobody could ever pull a trillion dollars worth of value out of the Bitcoin market. If you were to try to sell all of those Bitcoin at this price, the price would go down. <laughs> like That is literally true about every market that exists on the planet. If there's more sellers than buyers, the price has to go down. Like Plus... Plus, these people are still using the U.S. dollar as a unit of account. That's why that's what he's got wrong about it. Right. I think it was he's like, she. oh, oh, well, you know, they they have it by they're looking at it by trying to sell it for dollars. Pronouns so are many people, though. they need to, they need to flip their understanding and start denominating the world in Bitcoin like we did, you know, with this chart here before. It's like it, you start looking at things in Bitcoin terms. Yes, these things are skewed because it's undergoing monetization. But in the long run, everything is trending to zero, Laura. You know? now, here's a good example. So my wife texted me the other day and was like, hey, you know the house that we sold um, six months ago? We, we sold it for like <clears throat> like high, like mid mid two seven mid 200, or like three quarter. Damn. All right, that whiskey's kicking in. We sold it for like 275, right? And she texted me and was like, hey, the house that we sold like four or five, six months ago is now worth like 290. And I'm like, all right, let me explain something to you. <laughs> when we had bought that house, it would have cost us about 41 Bitcoin. When we sold that house, we could have sold it for about four and a half Bitcoin. And she was like, I think I blew her mind a little bit because she was yeah. like, what? so wait, does that mean that when Bitcoin goes up in price, it's just the dollar? Because I, I had also explained to her that like the house isn't getting necessarily more valuable, valuable, but the dollar is becoming worth less. And she says, well, does that mean when the price of Bitcoin goes up that it's not Bitcoin becoming more valuable. It's just the dollar becoming worth less. And I said, no, because Bitcoin is vastly outperforming the level of debasement of the dollar, such well, a way that most things, if not everything, as far as I can tell on a long-term basis, is getting cheaper priced in Bitcoin as opposed to priced in dollars. For me, it's a poor K, no los dos kind of situation because- well, for, Can you explain that for those of us who don't speak Spanish? Por que no los dos means why not both? um is that spanish or portuguese it's spanish okay. um it, it's a meme people say that all the time like por que no los dos like if you ask like if this thing is this anyway um the u.s dollar is definitely getting less valuable because you know 30 percent of the supply or whatever it was printed this year so it is there is more supply of it so given the same amount of de demand that are as paribus it is going to be worth less the bitcoin system at the same time today due to network effects the tools that are being built around it is literally getting more valuable as a system that you can interact with. And um, it is it is getting more value kind of bid into it via the price discovery thing. So it's it's multiple things interacting all at the same time where, yes, the U.S. dollar is getting devalued. And yes, the Bitcoin system is getting more valuable and having more network effects and therefore more valuable, more tools, more valuable. 
such and such. But that, and that's why what what Ben said is so important. You have to switch your unit of account. And and a few years ago, a lot of people were had a lot of trepidation about this. They were like, eh, I don't think that like it's time for that yet. Like Bitcoin isn't a good unit of account. We are there, guys. You're at the point now where if you're not denominating value if you're not using satoshis as your unit of account you are going to get wrecked you need to be starting to make your economic decisions based around satoshi as your unit of value not the dollar not the pound not the australian dollar or whatever else it is that you're using you need to be pricing costs of everything in bitcoin and and it will totally change the way that you see the world because you'll see that the price of everything is going down relative to bitcoin versus 90 percent of the population who's currently experiencing like mini hyperinflation at the moment especially in certain commodities markets like they're like holy crap you know my pay has only gone up one percent in the last three years but the price of lumber just went up 95 in like a few months right <laughs> Uh, and this goes back to uh, short-term volatility versus long-term volatility. Um, if, if you're trying to use the Bitcoin as a unit of account in the short term, you may actually have some difficulty. Um, but if you use it in a unit of account in the long term, um, you will start to understand what we're talking about. And as Bitcoin grows as a system, um, its liquidity grows and it becomes less volatile because it just has more monetary inertia, is what I say. And it, and it gets better at being a unit of account in the short term as well. Lower that time preference. Mm -hmm. uh, all right let's, let's take a break and talk about river all right i love river man i feel you know i don't like keeping my coins on an exchange colin i'll be honest with you uh, i heard this thing that says nacho keys nacho cheese i don't know what it means but i i what i, I don't like to leave lots of my money on exchanges but what i do like to do is leave a little bit of my money on river um and one of the reasons why i like to um uh just joking aside is because um, I can actually use River to loop out my Lightning channels. Um, so, like, and they actually, like, I don't know if they were advertising this previously, but like, I had mentioned it to them previously, and I saw them tweet about it recently. It's like, hey, you can actually loop out your Lightning channels by sending Lightning Bitcoin to them, and then you get like incoming liquidity from that channel. So that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I, um, for some reason, River flies under the radar. I don't see people talk about it much. So, first of all, full disclosure, like, I understand that there's a time and a place in Bitcoin. And then like the best thing to do is to get non-KYC Bitcoin that you don't buy from a centralized institution. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, buyer beware, like don't keep your coins on an exchange. Like obviously there's risks there Use that best. you need to consider for yourself. <laughs> but you know, let's be honest, most people are gonna buy their Bitcoin from a centralized institution that requires KYC and AML. It's just, it's just the way it is. Like you might not yeah. like it. I don't necessarily agree with it either, but it's just, the way it is right because we're willing to sacrifice certain trade-offs for convenience river flies under the radar for a lot of people like you'll you'll see some of these really big accounts talking about like oh um kraken or bitfinex or whoever i forget who did it um just processed like a thousand transactions in lightning and i'm like river's been doing this since like day one since they started yeah, yeah you, you can do literally whatever you want with river with lightning and it's a great way to get free lightning liquidity um, it's pretty incredible, actually, it, and it's a totally undersold feature of their product. So uh, if you guys are interested in River, just go to river.com slash BEC, and you can get your first week of orders um, with no fees. That's a great uh, deal that we worked out with the guys at River to help sponsor Ben and I's stuff. So, you know, if you want to support us or if you just want to check out River, go, go sign up for that. Uh, but if not, you know... You don't have to like we're not telling you that you need to like, <laughs> go buy bitcoin on bisque like I, more power to you man that's the way to do it 
Uh, Bitcoin crashed today, Colin. Did it? Yep. Crap, dude. Taleb was right. <laughs> Did you guys see my meme on the thumbnail? I made that. Oh man. Can we? Yeah. Can we bring that back up? Uh, you'll have to pull it up because you have I'll screen share at the moment. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm just the little window at the top. It. I think. Is it here? There. I have too many. And I should have done that forever ago. Well, it's better. See, you're always doing the screen share, so I feel like it's better to do you as the main and me as like the little guy. But then people can't look at my weird ass shaped head. So <laughs> fragile. Managing Bitcoin derangement syndrome. New York Times bestseller. <laughs> uh, that was a good one. Somebody was like, how can we meme this guy? How can we meme Fragile Taleb? And I was like, oh, I was born for this. <laughs> Some amazing Photoshop skills there, by the way. Thanks. Uh, it's really easy to do. Oh, you just, you just got to match the color with the color picker tool. And then you can just make anything look like... Photoshop is a is a very valuable skill if you guys want to meme things into reality, just so you know. It's a, I use GIMP, by the way. I don't even use Photoshop. GIMP is free. It's like a free Photoshop alternative. Uh, Colin, did you want to talk about any other things we have on the list here? Um, sure, I don't think we've talked about any of them. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about my things because I brought them up. You yeah. have some things in here. Yeah, I've kind of just been rolling with whatever you said. Um <clears throat> are we are we ready to slay our hero michael saylor on um no dude of I'm not. i mean I, I so like here's the thing right oh, I, wait, michael we're... i am i am not uh i don't put heroes on a pedestal i think michael is an awesome guy um he was one of the i was one of the you know i was in the small crop of bitcoiners that he first followed when he came out of the closet so to speak humble and, brag I'm totally, yeah, no, I'm totally, like, humbled by that, honestly. I'm blown away by it all the time because I'm like, wow, this dude, you know, this this billionaire with large cojones thinks that the content I create is has value. And I'm like, I'm amazed by that. But I am not the type of guy that's cucked by, you know, playing the influencer game or protecting, you know, uh, dollars that come from certain products or whatever. Like, if someone does something that I think is screwed up, I'm going to call it out because, my livelihood is not based around how many followers I have on my pseudo-anonymous Twitter account. Um, but I think that people sort of jump the gun on this, right? Because we don't we don't have any information. And what does Bitcoin analytics actually mean? Well, like Glassnode is Bitcoin analytics. Uh, and, and Michael Saylor actually came out in uh, BTC session stream last night. They asked mm -hmm. him about this directly. They were like, yo, Michael, what's up with this? The Hornets are getting pissed. And he's like, yeah, that sentence was sort of taken out of context. We don't have any plans to really do anything except um, add Bitcoin to our balance sheet because, you know, w w we looked into it and we couldn't really find a good way to monetize um, data analytics. So, like, we're, we're not doing that. I, I, he's like, you know, there, we have teams of lawyers and we have accountants and all of these things and they comb through and put together all these statements. And I, I think that that headline is misleading because we have no intentions of doing any type of uh, Bitcoin analytics. And I'm like, yeah, see, and that's why it's it's reasonable to take a measured approach. And and the Hornets have PTSD, man. Like they are so mm -hmm. sick of having to slay their heroes and they're ready to, they're like, they're like out for blood uh, at a it's moment's good. notice. And it's a good thing. Like it is a good thing. But at the same time, like you need to be realistic. Like don't, it, it's not necessarily valuable to jump to conclusions when you don't have all of the information. 100%. Um, you also wrote the CIA director. 
uh, on Bitcoin. Yeah, did you see that post? Yeah, I think so. He uh, he basically said, I, I, now I'm forgetting exactly what he said. That Bitcoin, he, he, it was sort of like an echo of saying like, oh, you know, Bitcoin isn't really used for illicit activity because it's way too easy for us to figure out who they are, right? Wasn't that what he said? Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact comment. I have to find it. This was your thing. I was supposed to see if you bring it up. <laughs> this is your thing. Yeah. No, so like Ben and I have this little Discord chat where I literally, we just like post stuff throughout the week to talk about on the weekend. And I don't, we don't, I don't do a good job of like noting the things that I throw in there. So I'll just be like, I'll have a random thought and I'll throw the thought in the channel and then we're kind of like, okay, what did you want to say about this? Oh, I don't know. I'm looking it up now because I thought it was interesting, but I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, Why are you looking at this? Go ahead. Has just published a hard-hitting report refuting the argument that Bitcoin is used for illicit activity. The report also calls on U.S. lawmakers to embrace Bitcoin to compete against China. That's from Connor Brown. Thanks, Connor. Friend of the show. Cases of, this is a direct quote, I guess. Cases of laundering through Bitcoin remain small compared to the volumes of cash laundered through traditional banking. Uh, we've been saying this for quite a while. It's just nice to have a little bit of uh, uh, vindication from the CIA director, I guess. Well, and interestingly, you know, we had Peter Thiel come out this past week, too, and sort of say, hey, um, China is using Bitcoin as like a monetary super weapon against the United States. And... I, I still don't know how I feel about this because a lot of people were saying, oh, no, he's playing 4D chess. Um, he's trying to move the Overton window of conversation about Bitcoin, you know, into the the national level um, in terms of taking this thing seriously. And I'm kind of over here like, eh. <laughs> I mean, I know it's inevitable, but like, <laughs> is this a good thing for Bitcoin? I mean, everything is good for Bitcoin, right? But like, it's, yeah. I don't want I don't want this bureaucracy this absolutely atrocious federal monopoly on violence and money to find any ways to sustain itself. I say we we choke the life out of it. Um I don't know, man. I I I people people are like no, Peter Thiel is like a white hat and he's acting in good faith and I'm sort of just like no, Peter Thiel is acting in his own best interest. Because um, Peter Thiel has a lot of incentives, uh, both to continue the government contracts for the companies that he works for, and to pump his own bags uh, in various ways. And I don't know, man. Like, what's good for him, even though it might make the price of Bitcoin go up, doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. That's all I'm gonna say. Well, I I have a slightly different take. I think. It doesn't matter what these people think. It doesn't matter what Peter Steele thinks. It doesn't matter what the CIA director thinks. I just think it's interesting that people are talking about it. People are talking about it. In Congress, they're talking about it. The CIA director, Peter Steele. It's, it's, it's in the conversation in a way that it has never been before in the last few years. And, um, you know, CBDCs as a response to Bitcoin, I think, is a, is a laughable just kind of like... It's, you know, and then they and then they fight you with that's the stage where we're kind of getting to is that and then they fight you and, and, and they don't realize what they're fighting against. So they don't know how to play the game. They don't know how to fight that game. Speaking they don't even of, understand. Speaking of, did you see the Dallas Federal Reserve director 
or Dallas Federal Reserve president, what he had to say at the Bitcoin A&M conference. I think I did see that. He said that CDBCs are not going to be a store of value and that Bitcoin is a proven store of value. (laughs) And that as a central, as a Federal Reserve director, that's about all he can say. (laughs) Didn't he say it could become a medium exchange as well? Uh, I don't know. I didn't see that part. If if he did, I I missed that. It, it, it has been a store of value, and it could become a medium exchange, is what he said. I thought. And then he was like, as a Federal Reserve Director, that's about all I can say on the matter. I think it, I think he was the one that said that. Again, I don't think people give people like, like him and like Jerome Powell enough credit. I, I still think one of my favorite quotes on Bitcoin is from Jerome Powell, where he said, Bitcoin is a speculative store of value like gold, and we could see a return to the free banking era. I, I, it's happening before our eyes, guys. I would never want to be in a guy like Jerome Powell's shoes. No. Because no. what do you, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, Absolutely. What, the, what the hell is a guy like that supposed to do except just print a crap ton of money? It's, it's, again, it goes back to the short-term volatility versus the long-term volatility. These people are going to do what they can to not have that painful thing come, even though that's what, like, that would be coming back to reality. That would get rid of the malinvestment, but it would hurt people in the long run. The fools that made the malinvestment due to the inflationary incentives that made it look like a good investment. So it's like, it's kind of like nobody's fault in a way. Um, but it still happened, and those people are still fools. Think about the incentives, right? If you're the guy under the gun when this tidal wave of liquidation is coming, and you're just like, no, 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 keep it back, keep it back, keep it back, and like <laughs> push it off, push it off, just until I get out from under right. the bullseye, right? So that the next guy can come in and take the guillotine. Because I don't want to be the one that's like strung up in the streets while everything goes to shit. Like, no, 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 do whatever we can, pump as much liquidity as possible into the system to postpone this liquidation and let the next guy deal with it. That is literally our bureaucracy like 101 every single politician that you look at even if they probably most of them i would say i bet you jerome powell understands what's coming but a lot of these politicians they have no idea they're so incredibly stupid they're very stupid people (laughs) they're only good at making promises and raising money they don't understand what's what's happening here but you know some of like the ones that maybe are a little more savvy like the ones that make it to like the higher levels of the bureaucracy probably to some degree understand what's coming and they just want to postpone it for as long as possible so that it doesn't happen on their watch and they don't get taken out to the guillotine and Bernanke, Alan Greenspan, Jerome Powell, it doesn't, you know, Janet Yellen, it doesn't matter. It, it, these these people didn't really start this fire, but they definitely threw more wood on top of it, right? The arsonist is, if you really look back, if you read Collins' paper, the arsonist is gold itself. Um, Gold failed uh, so many times. You know, I always say that, but like, go read his paper. You can see each time it failed in like small and big ways. Um, And Bitcoin is the only only solution to this problem. Well, like the arsonist, yeah, it's probably the guy who started the fire. But if everyone who comes along after him throws more wood on it instead of a bucket of water right technically they're complicit right yes well yes but i mean you can you can trace this all the way back to the founding of this nation and it was always over problems that were really difficult to solve because the money wasn't there to solve the problem and they're like how are we going to fix this well we've got to do this stuff that like is kind of shady and violates our principles a little bit but it's what we have to do to survive um, and there were always justifications for it throughout all of our history. And now we're watching the justifications for printing more money just get looser and looser and looser. And you're watching. Um, I, I forget what I said in the water cooler the other day, but I was like, um, 
that's a channel in our discord but i was like okay so now we have our federal reserve is fighting climate change and the cdc is fighting racial inequality <laughs> that's literally the state that we're in to justify some of these policy making decisions in the west it's well it's so absurd it's for the greater good colin you know <laughs> it's all just justification for money printing Mm-hmm. Well, justification for threat, theft, which that's that's a form of theft, right? right. In my opinion, well, and um, that's exactly what I wrote about in uh, Wisdom and Law. Yes. Um, last thing I would bring up was uh, I thought this was a really uh, good explainer because uh, you know how um, so Turkey just banned um, Bitcoin as a transactional currency. Uh, so, which I mean is great because they're teaching people to hodl. So I think right. that's fantastic. Um, that you know that they've they're really like and but so i wanted like a little bit more to, i wanted to give a, a bit of instruction to um to the you know central banks and countries like turkey around the world um about how to ban bitcoin um so i got you know i found this meme um i think it's really useful that they should read this um it it might it might take them a while to get through this um very long tome but um this i, I just i think we should educate you know the people that run our world on on about how they can you know bitcoin that's beautiful i love that strike is killing it with the memes yes good job jack mallers jack please hire me please i will work for you for free please um, dude i have been in jack mallers dm so many times and he just never responds and i'm just like, never my heart is breaking jack please it's like eric wall we we, we try, multiple times tried to get him on dms and he just ignores us well that's like um yeah, because he always tweets about our website, yeah. and like he just totally ignores us. And it's like whatever, man. But I don't know. I, I'm trying to be like a full stack developer right now, and like my my dream. I think about this every day. I'm like, I just want to work for Jack Mallers. Like that's all. Like, yeah. In the future, maybe I'd like to go off and do my own thing. But like, all I want in the world is to like go do, go be a part of what Jack's doing because he is the tip of the spear, quite literally, right now. Yeah, strike is. Um is doing such cool things we just did a episode on what bitcoin did about um what strike is doing down in Ven um not venezuela el salvador um with bitcoin beach mm -hmm. um they, so like they're working on launching Stri uh, strike global um which i thought it, it, it was a little bit confusing on their messaging because i thought it was kind of already launching did but... you see the data that they posted that showed like average number of strike users versus when they launched there and then how much their numbers went up it was like insane like there, it was like you had this, how do I even describe this? It was a chart. I, I wish I had it, but it was yeah. basically like a tiny little sliver. And then when they launched, um, and I, and I guess it was El Salvador, like their, their numbers, their total number of users just like quintupled. It was insane. <laughs> so like most of their users now are there. That's insane. Yeah. Dude. This tiny country with small market cap, everything. And so, I mean, that's like Bitcoin. <laughs> you know the people that say bitcoin is uh, is useless are the people that live in you know as alex gladstein would say yeah. these priv privileged western countries that don't realize how much important this is a tool in a transaction you know we talk about it as a store of value and a savings technology these people need it to like move money around right. and, and use remittances and stuff like that and alex is really good at calling people out on this like he he pulls no punches when he sees people start talking about like oh like nobody needs bitcoin it's totally useless and he comes in and he's just like excuse me i think your privilege might be obfuscating your view on this matter like you don't understand there are a lot of people in the world who need this right now today because they're suffering 
Yes. Even though he's a status cuck, we love you, Alex. You are one of my favorite Bitcoiners. <laughs> <laughs> no, he really is, man. I have a lot yes. of respect for that guy, even though I don't agree with everything that he, he says. All right. Last thing on your list. I'm not going to be able to segue either of these, so I don't know if you wanted to bring up the Berlin hardware, hard fork or Tapper. Uh, do we really need to talk about, about Ethereum? You the one that posted it. Dude, what was I thinking? Like, yeah, you... It's probably the whiskey. It's yeah. probably the whiskey. Taproot activation we could mention real quick. Um, I don't know. I, I can't make heads or... It takes me months to parse through some of the things that go on <laughs> at the high level of Bitcoin. So... What we do know... I pay a lot of attention to Francis Pouliot because he's one of my favorite Bitcoiners. I think he's he's just solid fundamentally. Um, and, and he's of the opinion that Bitcoin Core should not be baking any more soft forks into its repos and that that should be done um, in separate clients and that users should entirely, that, that we should have no speedy trial, that there should be no activation decisions made by Bitcoin Core because he's of the belief that Bitcoin Core has become too political and this whole wise old men board of wise old men thing is dangerous in the long term and that from now on all soft forks should be determined by the user base on you know secondary activation clients outside of bitcoin core where if enough users want taproot they're going to go and download that client and run it because they know that that's the activation method and while i agree with what he's saying i think that that might just be a little bit um high in the sky like i don't know like that's probably never going to happen and i think that's his point he's like well if it's not going to happen through the users activating it through a soft fork of their own choosing you know outside of bitcoin core the dominant protocol then there's not enough demand yeah i mean i think maybe this is is a growing pains problem i'm not sure but what i do understand really well is it doesn't really matter what those people do bitcoin core or whatever because what if the users want like i i know of people right now and i can't even tell you who they are because i'm not going to reveal it because somebody told me in confidence of people that are working on setting up their own you know activation versions of this software and they can release it when they feel like it and if people want to run it they will that's that's the reality of the situation. It doesn't matter what any centralized body is doing. Um, yes, those those centralized bodies do have some form of influence. They have a larger voice in some ways. But Bitcoin is a meritocracy of ideas, not people. Get that through your head. You've got to get that through your head. It doesn't matter what some centralized thing does. Whatever software version we want to run, somebody's going to fucking write it and somebody's going to release it and you're either going to run it or you're not. Right. And I, and I would go so far as to say that that goes for upgrading Bitcoin Core, right? And and yes, um, it starts to kind of be a little bit of a slippery slope, right? Because let's say I use BTC Pay Server and I use Lightning and I use all of these things that are built on top of Bitcoin. And let's say some contentious upgrade comes out with Bitcoin Core where some of the user base decides, I don't know that I want to upgrade to that because that's like I kind of question the design decision but mm -hmm. it's like okay well that's fine you don't have to do that but if you want to keep using btc pay server and if you want to keep using lnd and if you want to keep using strike or, or all of these different um layers of the protocol and all of those layers of the protocol say well we're upgrading and if you want to continue to use our product you're going to have to upgrade or it's going to break all of your backwards compatibility and mm -hmm. granted yeah you could just like not upgrade um and hope it continues to still work but you can see how pressure kind of cascades in a layered system. Yes, for sure. 
Um, but I, I, I point out a that BTC Pay Server, for example, is the one you used, is open source software. Right. So you, a, you could and, technically just like fork it, right? And B, uh, I there's a part of this whole taproot discussion that I actually kind of enjoy. That it's getting, I feel like it's getting harder to change Bitcoin over time. That's the ossification that we've heard Marty Ben talking about for years now. Um, and and he kind of just talk, he just drills it in as a concept that I, I I do think we're getting to a point where the protocol can ossify and the things that we need to change can happen on higher layers. You Feature, know? not a bug. I, I don't know of many features more that we need in Bitcoin. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into the mimble wimble and base layer privacy thing at this at this time. It's like um, the best thing about Bitcoin is that it's hard to change. It's literally yes. the only thing that's kept it working this long. And if you look at the development that's happening on Lightning right now, what's what's getting built out, and and things like Strike, which are a bridge into other worlds as well, between the Lightning world and the actual Lightning world, where everything's open source and everything can just flow freely, um, it's it's, it's mind numbing. I, I can't follow it all. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. It's really cool to see. Um, I I I generally speaking, like, don't really like Luke Des Jr. I think he might be. He, I don't know what's up with that dude. I think he's got like his own motivations or something. Like he, he sketches me out. I don't know what I don't know what his deal is. If he's like a bad actor or if he's just weird. Um, but like I, I saw Jeremy Rubin was like tweeting about like, hey, this dude is like legitimately threatening violence against me. Yeah. Just because I basically said I, I don't like what he's the way he's misrepresenting his release um, of this X software you know client claiming it's Bitcoin Core. It's not. Right. And, and he's he's correct when he says that, like it isn't like it's not an official Bitcoin core release. It's it's which is fine. Like Luke Dash Jr., mm -hmm. if you want to release your own client with the activation that you've worked on, go right ahead. But like don't misrepresent it to people. Um, and then he's coming back and like threatening violence at Jeremy. Um, that's 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 screwy. And that should give a lot of people like pause for concern and be like, what is this guy's motivations? Like, why is he taking this? I understand a lot of people have worked for a really long time to make this happen, but um, that's not the way to go about it. Well, I wonder if this is a decent opportunity to bring up something that I talk about a lot is critical thinking, um, because it, and, and as it maybe ties into Web of Trust, right? Critical thinking allows us to constantly evaluate the information that's coming into us, absorb information from many different sources, sources that we tend to trust and sources that we don't tend to trust, and then also talk about Web of Trust, right? So you're talking about Luke is this person that I'm not sure I trust. He he's smart. He knows about Bitcoin Core. So like you still listen to what he's saying, um, and you're evaluating that information. And then like there's other people that you might trust more. And I saw like John Cavarlo um, happened to be on this little you know this this thing that he was uh, that Francis Pulo was you know retweeting here. Um, and John Cavallo, somebody asked John John Cavallo was saying, well uh, I think he was saying that Luke was somebody you didn't trust. And somebody replied to John Carvalho saying, well, who do you trust? And he said, I'll reply later with a weighted list. And I thought that was very intelligent. I don't always agree with John. No, either. John's very smart, though. But he is smart. Yeah. And he, what he was saying is, so I have a list of people that I trust different percentages. And probably that changes all the time, mm -hmm. right? And that's how we should think As about it should. this stuff. Like you're not a Bitcoin, if you're listening to this right now, you're probably not a Bitcoin core developer and you probably don't understand all of the technicals involved, but there probably are people in the space that you do trust, whether or not you should, like you might trust me and maybe you shouldn't because I don't understand the technicals well enough. Don't, I mean, don't trust me. You could verify as much as you can, but when you can't, like we as a society, we work with well with specialization, but just like be careful with your webs of trust. Don't like 
binarily trust people for sure, use these like kind of weighted averages in your head and say, well, that, that person says things that make sense. I follow their logic, so to speak. I don't know. Does that make sense, Colin? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think um, what John kind of missed there is that like it wasn't Luke getting hung up to dry um, just because he released the software. Like I don't, I don't think anybody would attack him for that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know because I don't know how deep the politics go here, but I think that the controversy over what Luke did was misrepresenting the client that he released as Bitcoin Core, um, which just definitionally, objectively, it is not, right? Right. And then there was all, all kinds of discussion over whether or not um, users who ran that client would potentially be at a risk, you know, like of a fork um, later on in the future, like if the client for whatever reason, didn't activate. Um, and and that's where I think the heat of a lot of the disagreements and arguments are over. Um, but I think that it's wrong to say that Luke doesn't be hung out to, doesn't deserve to be hung out to dry for releasing the software. I don't think that that's what's going on. Um, I don't think that that's why people are upset. And I think that that's like a mischaracterization of why people were upset. Yeah, makes sense to me. I don't have much to add to that. But again, these types of things, like I try not to form strong opinions on early and I sort of like take my time and, and yeah. read through some of people, lots of the people who are not only smarter than me, but way more informed about this than me. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I'd love to work on Bitcoin Core one day, but I'm not there yet. Like half of what these people say, I don't understand. Um, and I am trying to change that. I'm trying to fix that. But like, you know, be slow to form opinions on these things. And then those opinions should maybe be pretty weakly held um, until you, you know, just be ready to admit to yourself at any point in time that maybe there's something you didn't know, right? Or, or your opinion was formed on incomplete information, I guess is where I'm going. Yeah, that's another good point too. And I was talking about like the weighted, you know, weighted percentages of how much you trust somebody, but you can do that same thing with your opinions. It, it, Marty Ben always talks about strong opinions, weakly held. And then like, I've heard you kind of reverse that before as well, but like, there could be there could be some gradients there you know you might have some opinions like bitcoin is the best money in the world and the you know the problems with money have affected the world in, in terrible terrible ways the fiat experiment has completely failed in every single way and and have those strongly and then have opinions on this and be like well i you know i have an opinion but it's not that strong and that's fine yeah no really it's it should be a constant process of um taking in new information and, and reevaluating your assumptions that's something that you should do in every aspect of your yes. life. But in particular, when we're talking about trillion dollar monetary networks that um, I would imagine a lot of you have the majority of your wor your net worth in at this point. Yes. All right. What else you got? Um, let me go look at the workshop. Uh, yeah, I don't really want to talk about the Berlin hard fork. I mean, uh, Ethereum broke their shit. <laughs> It's it's just <laughs> funny that you know somebody tweeted I forgot who it was they tweeted out like the juxtaposition. Again. What's that? Oh yeah, they tweeted out the ju juxtaposition of like, isn't it ironic how you know Bitcoin has spent the last year and some change debating over taproot activation methods, um, while Ethereum just rolls in with a steamroller hard fork and breaks half of what they do. It just couldn't. It couldn't juxtapose the. Um, design culture any better between the two you know one is like move fast and break things um, and do what I say or else 
right? I remember the meme I made of Vitalik like years ago, the last time they did this, where they just like, because you know you understand that if you use Ethereum and you don't agree with their with their new client, you don't have a choice because it's a hard fork. Like yeah, you can stay on the minority chain, but you're gonna get left behind. You upgrade to what they tell you to upgrade to, and and most Ethereum users don't even run a node, so like you don't even have a say. In, in whether or not you want to participate in the hard fork. You're Hashtag. literally along for the ride for whatever this small group of um, technocrats decides they want to do with the chain. Like, you have no vote. Yeah, I'm, I'm an ETC maximalist, so I'm Ethereum <laughs> Classic. Um, it's it funny because you mentioned the juxtaposition between uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum because I saw a different tweet um, that compared this chart, which you should all know by now if you don't know what this chart is. Um, you could just turn off the stream right now. Um, and it compared uh, the Bitcoin supply with this chart, <laughs> which is the Ethereum supply. Ultra, li- ultrasound looks, money. Looks a little different, Colin. Um, ultrasound money. <laughs> they're, they're just making it up as they go along. There's no fucking clue what they're doing, guys. Just sell your ETH today and buy ETC Classic. It's such, and not only that, so here's what I think about, right? Um, when Etherscan went down because they did the Berlin hard fork and a lot of the exchanges froze like ERC twenties, um, you know, Ethereum. Can you guys stop trading now? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and Marty, Marty said that he thinks that that happened just out of an abundance of caution, that it didn't necessarily break, um, their ability to process those transactions, but they did it just in case there was like, um, a reorg or a split or just anything like that. The risk of using anything built on top of Ethereum, in my opinion, just continues to grow by the day. And it oh, is yeah. just compounding. Because, like, I think anybody that has it, like, uses, like, these stable coins or, like, wrap Bitcoin or, like, these ERC20 tokens, they are playing with fire, dude. 100%. This thing is um, not going to make it to ETH 2.0. Like, it is going to crash and burn at some point in this supposed transition to ETH 2.0 and I, I think that they know that and I think that they're trying to put out fires um, as fast as they can and the fires are popping up faster than they can put them out and I think that they know that their time on this Ponzi is limited and it, dude it, this is going to be bigger when this thing finally collapses it's going to be bigger than Bernie Madoff devastating <laughs> like there is dude. so much misallocated capital in this thing of people that just have no idea what they own they don't understand anything about it other than hey, I can buy crypto kitties and NFTs. Like it, it is so stupid. Well, yeah, but, but ETH two is coming, Colin. Look, ETH two is coming. <laughs> yeah, can't wait. You know, you know, it's funny. I was, I'm, I'm actually starting to get more and more of my normie friends like start reaching out to me because like, I'm, you know, I'm the Bitcoin guy, and and uh, and like we're starting like now I have some group chats going, and I was, uh, we had a Zoom call the other day, and I was, I was trying to explain like it was like half an hour of them being like, wait, what about this? And I would explain that and they'd be like, whoa. And then what about that? And it was kind of over that and over and over again. And they were asking about altcoins or something. And I was like, they're all completely centralized. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, who controls ETH? How can they be goes, centralized, Ben? They're blockchains. And, but but I go, well, who controls ETH? And he goes, oh, <laughs> Vitalik. And I was like, yes. But Ben, <laughs> blockchains are decentralized. Right. Duh. And immutable. Don't you, you know? know? They're immutable. That all of these projects are decentralized and immutable. Yes. They have max supplies, Ben. Right. That was like, and that was what like. Wait, wait, max supplies, right? That was what Francis was telling people. It was like, (laughs) 
honestly, that's a really good question. Like when noobs come in and they're like, hey, no, like why are you saying that this is a shit coin? It has a max supply. Like you can't dilute it. That's a really good question. And you should ask that question. But as long as you're open to hearing the answer is that they're not. Mm -hmm. They can be changed. That's what like the that's what people don't understand. They can be changed because you're not running a node. You don't have a vote in the way the network is governed. And even if you are, and they hard fork every six months, I mean, what are you, you going to do? I mean, like, let's it, be honest, dude. I, I've made this point before. Like, these people that are buying and using Litecoin and Doge and Ethereum and on, like, go on and on down the list. None of these idiots are technically savvy enough to even know why they need to run a node much less are very many of them actively participating in network governance like it's just the honest truth because generally speaking you know like we have like a, a pareto distribution in terms of um you know all of the smartest minds right now are in bitcoin and i'm not saying that to disparage the people who have all this other crap i'm telling you that they just do not understand what they're doing they're in over their head and they haven't put in the time and the energy and the research to actually understand how all of the subtle nuances of the system interlock together. They don't use critical thinking. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why you need to tune in next week to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber live show at 1030 Eastern Standard Time, Saturdays, to learn more about why you have no idea what you're talking about. And neither do we. <laughs> We're just faking it well, as we go. Well, will it be in Moscow time, Colin? Uh, it's so hard to predict. <laughs> Moscow time it's, is Moscow fickle. time is kind of a shit coin yeah, for a time, yeah, it's right? Fickle. It's fickle. <laughs> All right, are we ending it there? I, think I so. forgot to record, so nice. <laughs> I'll well, have to. It'll be like a few days till this goes up on the pod because I have to wait till YouTube processes it and then I can download it. Well, that's that's all, folks. Yeah, thanks for watching. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>